Hello and welcome to Crawford Insights, the podcast where we take a recent post from Crawford Investment Council's blog and dive in just a little bit deeper with the author. I'm your host, Tom Bueller, Senior Portfolio Manager here at Crawford, and today we're discussing J&J, dividends, and divestitures with our guest, Senior Research Analyst Frank Pinkerton. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. We wanted to spend a little bit of time this afternoon going over J&J and what we see happening there with the potential spin of their consumer division. Why don't you spend a couple of minutes just giving us some highlights on J&J and why we think it's a good type of investment for our type of client. Of course, Tom, and thanks everyone for listening. So at Crawford Investment Council, we look at long-term growth and sustainable companies. We view the dividend as a way in which to track two very important things. That is the ability for a company to generate excess free cash flow and the ability for management to give money back to shareholders. That is our initial thought, and J&J is one of the best examples of a company that fits that broad landscape. Now, when we narrow down specifically to the company, we like J&J because of its industry-leading position in all three of its segments and its ability to grow despite the economic cycle or what's going on in the broader market. It really is a company where the management team has set a path for itself and they control their own destiny and can continue to give excess return back to shareholders through dividends. Great, Frank. Appreciate that. Now, as it relates to the potential spin, you've written some internal pieces that we've discussed here, and you're not necessarily very enamored with this idea. Can you tell us what your thought process is around what management's trying to accomplish and why you may differ with their opinion? So, first of all, management's main goal with this spin is that they view the three segments of the company as having different channels. So the pharmaceutical division and the medical device division Both need doctor's prescriptions or doctors doing surgery. They go through very specific channels that the consumer products division does not go through. And so management has stepped back and they've said, look, this consumer division would be better standing on its own and operating with its own executive team, its own driver, and its own kind of growth path going forward that isn't linked to the other two divisions, which are in different parts of the market. We at Crawford are looking at this and saying, I understand what management's thinking, but don't believe that's going to add value really in the longer term. We actually like the fact that Johnson & Johnson is a conglomerate, and by that it is three very separate businesses. And so when one business is doing well and the other one is not, they're kind of covering for each other. Also, we like the fact that Johnson & Johnson, since its founding, has basically been an acquirer of different businesses. And it's pieced this together over 120-plus years. And the management team has always been very thoughtful and out in front of trends. And just because a consumer business may not fit exactly what they want today, we do see it still as being a core part of their portfolio where they can invest excess capital, where they can grow. And ultimately, it's going to be something that I think they should keep so that shareholders can reap the benefit from it in the long term. So you mentioned that J&J has a long history of making acquisitions. Can you just run through a couple of those? I know that we've talked about some on the consumer side. So why don't you give us a little bit of real-world examples of those types of acquisitions? The consumer side is actually a great place to start. So if you think of Johnson & Johnson, the entire company was founded on sterile surgical bandages. And this was back in the 19th century. Now, if we go forward and think of, well, they introduced the Band-Aid in the early 20th century, and that was one of their leading consumer products. But J&J also owns things like 
Tylenol, which I believe was internally developed at McNeil, which was their pharmaceutical branch, then ported over to consumer. But then acquisitions, things like Listerine, things like Zyrtec, Neosporin. These are all brands that J&J has bought within the last 20, 25 years, brought in-house into the broader consumer division, and then grown and gone forward. If you think more broadly on the entire portfolio, then J&J has done several large acquisitions. For example, Actillion was the most recent, which was brought in-house to expand their pharma pipeline. They also do a great job of not necessarily acquiring, but partnering with companies to get products to market. And that's where they've also had a lot of success. So we've covered the success they had on the acquisition front. It sounds like management's demonstrated an ability to add value there. Have they ever done a large divestiture like this? I'm sure they've done, you know, one brand here, one brand there, but have they ever really done a big division spin out like this? Tom, that's a great question. And they have not. They do constantly kind of buy and sell different things on the edges of these portfolios in and out. Most recently in the medical device division, the management team's been extremely active with small purchases and divestitures, but never anything as large as this consumer asset. And does that give you concern that they may not necessarily have the track record or experience to fall back on in splitting up such a large portion of the business? I would say from an experience and from a risk standpoint, you're not at risk from divesting because none of the other two businesses rely on the consumer. We would be more worried if they were doing extremely large acquisitions. Typically, integration of an outside acquisition is much more difficult than a divestiture. What I would say, and and the thing that kind of gives me a little bit of pause, is if you think of what's going on in the broader industry across pharmaceuticals, this has really become a trendy thing. And so if you go back 30 years in the 80s, it was trendy to bring in assets like this. But now for the last five to seven years, it's very trendy to shed assets. And what do I mean by trendy? Well, think about the consumer segments for other companies. Pfizer took their consumer segment, put it with a joint venture with GlaxoSmithKline, and now Glaxo and Pfizer are going to spin that out to the market middle of this year in 2022. If you think of Novartis, very large conglomerate healthcare company in Europe, they spun out Alcon, which was an ophthalmology business. And so that actually is one where they bought it about 10 years ago, and now we're spinning it out. So they've kind of gone full circle there. Pfizer and Merck both recently have spun out a sub-segment of some of their pharmaceutical products that are older, slower growing products, biosimilars that they didn't have a need for anymore so they can increase their growth profile. So I think what we're a little more worried about is we at Crawford aren't interested in what the current trend is. We're not interested in you know some consultant coming in and telling the pharma company, hey, if you can get your growth rate up a little bit, your valuation on your stock's going to be higher. We're not necessarily looking for plays like that. And so from our standpoint, a lot of the reasons why some of these are going on don't make sense to us. And is that what you think management's motivation is, that they've either talked to a consultant or they've done their own internal analysis and come to a conclusion that by separating these businesses, they can get a more attractive valuation on the remaining piece of Johnson & Johnson as opposed to the consumer piece? Yes, I think that's exactly what they've come to. And, And to be honest, when you look at these consumer companies, even though they don't grow as fast as the pharma businesses and their margins aren't as high as the pharma business, for example, in Johnson & Johnson, the multiples that they trade at in the market in this consumer staple space 
are much higher than what pharmaceutical companies trade for. And, for example, earlier I mentioned that GlaxoSmithKline was going to spin out their consumer business. They've announced that over a year now, and everyone knows it's coming. Recently in the media, there was a bid by Unilever for that business, and it was at 50 billion pounds, which is shocking because that's much higher than anyone thought it would be. And this isn't a spin out to trade on its own. This is a company wanting to step in and pay cash and stock for an asset. So, yeah, I think J&J maybe has a little hidden value in this consumer division, what I would question from us as long-term shareholders is, do we want to reap that all this year or next year when they end up spinning it out, or do we want to hold that value because it's going to throw off cash, it's going to help support dividend growth and do a lot of things positive for our investors? Great. couple final questions on the spin, and then I think we can focus on Johnson & Johnson as a business and what they've done historically, dig in a little bit deeper on why we like it. There are still a number of unknowns related to this spin. We don't know exactly what the structure is going to look like. We don't know exactly which members of the current management team will go over. Do we have any insight on timing for when the spin will occur and or timing on when we'll find out additional details? Sure. So I think the most important things to realize is that When they announced this last year in 2021, they purposefully said they're not going to do it until 2023. And that's because they then have a chance to get all the different business parts aligned, all the ducks in a row for what to do, maybe even potentially look at bids from the outside or something else. So I think that's highly unlikely. Right now, management is pointing to announcing who the executives are for the new consumer business in the second quarter of this year. So let's think of that as kind of May, June of 2022 then they're going to give greater financial detail on the consumer division at the back half of 2022. So that's probably going to be in the fourth quarter. And then they have just recently said they're still on track to spin in 2023. So ultimately, the timeline hasn't shifted. We're going to find some of this information out as we go. But yeah, there's still a lot that needs to come through in order for the transaction to take place. So as we go through that, you know, I think we'll look to you to continue to update us as new information comes along. And if that changes our opinion on either Johnson & Johnson as a combined conglomerate, Johnson & Johnson's consumer division that gets spun out, or the remaining pieces of Johnson & Johnson that remain with the parent company, we'll look for additional insights from you on that. Yeah, correct. And I'd, I'd just like to say, especially on the consumer spend side of this, you know, we currently hold Johnson & Johnson because in looking at the pharma pipeline, we can get a thesis around how the company is going to be able to grow a little faster than most investors think, and the returns are going to be there. Once the consumer business is spun out and it stands on its own, while I've covered that part of Johnson & Johnson, I've also gotten help from part of our team, David Gilmore, and he will definitely then actively take a look at that. So it's possible that once it's spun, we would continue to hold that in another means by more, maybe less, depending on what the position size is and what David feels is appropriate. But just know that we're you know, thinking about all the different parts of this for the investors for the longer term. That's great. And it's good to know that you're interacting with our consumer analyst, David Gilmore, to get his insights because you know this spun out piece will likely fall under his worldview going forward. Correct. Yes, exactly. Well, great. Why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, J&J's historical return pattern, its growth, how they've been able to accomplish that, and what we see going forward. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the piece that you put together is noting that J&J is a stock we've owned for many, many decades here. We think, you know, over 40 years. And 
It's interesting to look at a stock that's been able to maintain its position in the portfolio over that time, given the different market environments we've been in, strategies and styles that come in and out of favor, but Johnson & Johnson's been that consistent piece in the portfolio. How has a company been able to maintain that type of exposure for our investor base for multiple decades? Well, Tom, that's a it's either a one-hour answer or a two-minute answer. I don't know, but that's a great question. When I'll start with it this way. When we wrote the piece, I did go and check and say, can you show me the accounts that have held the stock? And we do have several that have been there for the entire time since the founding of the firm in, in 1980. The other thing I think is always funny is, when we're in research meetings or even when I'm walking down the hall and, and pass John Crawford Sr., the founder of the firm, he always looks at me and says, let's go talk about J&J. So, I mean, it holds a dear position in his heart. But what I would ultimately point to on why we continue to hold J&J is that, like I said earlier, it's a company that continues to control its own destiny. So right now, J&J invests somewhere around $14 billion a year in research and development. And that money gives new drugs, gives new medical devices, brings in new consumer products, launches new consumer products, pays for marketing campaigns to establish brands. And they continue to build, think of it as a business, right, moats around the castle. They continue to build moats around these leading brands and leading franchises. And so from that standpoint, we will continue to hold J&J as long as they can do it. The other point I'd really like to make here on J&J is it's not really going to be the best. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and J&J is going to have gone up 200% in a year and everybody's going to think it's the next great stock people talk about on CNBC. But that's not the real point. The real point with J&J is we get that slow, steady growth, we get that slow, steady improvement, and we get that dividend and the growth in that dividend. So yeah, you mentioned the growth in the stock, the growth in the dividend. Can you give us some historical numbers on some of the returns that J&J has been able to generate? Sure. So in the piece, we we talk about the performance of the stock as if it were held through the entirety of the time that Crawford Investment Council has been in operations. So basically, the company was founded in October of 1980, and we ran the numbers through the end of 2021. So if you were to take a theoretical $100,000 invested in Johnson & Johnson shares, that would have grown to $9.9 million at the end of 2021. The S&P would have grown to $3.8 million. So you can clearly see that the stock itself outperformed the market. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive track record. Yeah. More importantly, though, as everyone hopefully on this podcast realizes, we are really a dividend shop. We're looking at income, looking at ways to provide income and growing income for our clients. So if you think about that annual dividend... In 1981, that would be the year after you purchased your shares, an investor would have gotten $3,095 on the Johnson & Johnson investment that they made of $100,000. In 2021, the dividend payout would have been $243,000. So you can clearly see over time investing in companies that value the shareholder, generate the excess free cash flow. It's a model that can work, you know, for companies that do that. So interestingly, we saw that J&J would have had a better return pattern than the S&P 500. I think what you said, $9.9 million versus $3.8 million as an ending value on that initial $100,000 investment. You gave us the number for dividends on J&J. I've got to assume the dividends on the S&P 500 would be better given the fact that the stock performed so well. 
Well, that's actually not true. So if you think about the dividends on the S&P 500, the same $100,000 invested in 1980 would have given you a dividend return in 2021 of $50,000. So if you think about stock performance, i.e. how much did the stock price go up, J&J was a little over two times better than the market. But you think about dividend performance, it was almost five times better than the market. Wow. And so that to us also shows why this is an investment we continue to hold on to. Yeah, that's an impressive track record. Did they do anything to dramatically change their dividend policy around that time? Or is it really just a reflection of the level of growth they've seen in their business? So they, they did increase the dividend every year. So from a standpoint of changing the policy, the answer is yes, every year they gave us an increase in the dividend. There were, of course, some periods during the 80s when the company was growing much faster that they were growing the dividend over 10%. More recently here, we're seeing what is a high single-digit growth in the dividend. So when I think of dividend growth, and especially for our clients, if we can meet their spending needs and the dividends of our companies grow higher than inflation or their incremental spending needs each year, then that's what gives us that safety level. So I do think kind of a high single-digit growth in the dividend over the last five years and over the next several years should be in the zone to help us with those type needs of our clients. Great. So we spent some time talking about the historical performance of J&J, but now let's focus on what we expect going forward. You just talked about that high single digit type of return. What are the drivers going to be to give us those types of numbers? Sure. So with Johnson & Johnson, we talked about the three divisions. Let's broadly take it and cut it open and say that about half, a little over half of this company is pharmaceuticals. And so the real drivers for the Johnson & Johnson business are in the pharmaceutical land. The biggest two categories of growth there are oncology, cancer drugs, and then immunology. On the cancer side, they've done a very, very good job getting out in front of the blood cancer space. They have a very large drug called Darzelect, and they have two follow-on therapies that should actually be better So they're going to displace their own drug with better drugs in the future, which is something we like. We like management teams that don't just sit on their their hands. They're actually out there actively trying to improve patients' lives. In the immunology side, they've got two products, Stellara and Tremphia, both which are growing very well and taking over from some older drugs that they had in the portfolio that have lost exclusivity. So J&J has two pretty good foundations on the biopharma side. In medical devices, while they do have some good, solid franchises that are, you know, number one or number two, what I would point investors to is that really the biggest thing coming down the pipeline in medical devices is what I'm going to refer to as digital surgery. And digital surgery is simply the use of a surgeon using a robot and artificial intelligence to make the surgery better, incisions smaller, cuts smaller, more precise not hitting as many veins or arteries, not doing any dam- or less damage while you're doing the surgery. And J&J really is at a point where they've invested several billion in this. They're going to invest much more. But they're one of the few companies that I see actually going in and changing the way we think of the operating room in the next kind of three to seven years. And in doing so, that is a multi, multi-billion dollar opportunity that should drive them for years to come. Wow. Sounds like there's some really exciting opportunities in the future for J&J. I agree. So what about the consumer division? Assuming that that does get spun out, what are the drivers that are going to make that a successful holding if we do indeed decide to continue to own that as a standalone business? 
Correct. So the consumer is a little bit different. There is research and development that goes on in a consumer business, but it's not full-on clinical trials. The amount that you would invest isn't as significant. But what J&J has done, especially in the last five years, is they've moved into different channels. So for example, the e-commerce side of the J&J consumer division has grown over 10% right, for the last five years. So when you think about growth in a market, that's three times the rate of the consumer staples market that they're pushing now through e-commerce channels to do better. They have also done a lot of refresh on products, and by refresh, it's change size, change amount, change packaging, or just at the incremental point, changing the product. So especially in their skin beauty line, they continue to adopt new technologies to make those products better and Lastly, what's really great in the consumer side is what we would call a mega brand, and most people now consider these mega brands at a billion dollars or more. So J&J has nine mega brands, and that's a lot for a company because then you can do advertising and affect the larger footprints within that brand, and your advertising goes further and you can drive sales better. So I think the consumer business has the potential when it's standing alone to do quite well. I'll just reiterate, I think it could also do well for shareholders if it was still held captive within Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, there are reasons why we like this combination of these three businesses together. Management, obviously, is looking at it a bit differently, but either way, still very attractive businesses. Yes, I agree. Good. Frank, appreciate you taking the time to go over this with us today. It was very insightful. We'll continue to look for additional commentary from you on J&J as we get more information about the potential spin and what the future looks like. Thank you, Tom. Absolutely. Well, that's our show for today. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Frank's article, J&J Dividends and Divestitures, on our website at insights.crawfordinvestment.com forward slash perspectives. Subscribe to the blog while you're there and be sure to join us next month for another episode. Thank you.